Stand by for the hook. Welcome to The Hook with Katie Kempner, Vice President of Agency Communications at Crispin Porter and Boguski, the most awarded advertising agency in the world. Every Tuesday at the intersection of advertising and PR, The Hook, where Katie talks with advertising visionaries, top journalists, cutting-edge creatives, authors, and PR gurus. Hear what these industry insiders have to say about the changing landscape of advertising and PR today. Now, here's your host, Katie Kempner. Hello, I'm Katie Kempner. Today is Tuesday, October 16th, and you are listening to The Hook, where each week I talk to advertising, branding, and public relations insiders who are both leading and covering the industry. My hope is that by listening to these thought leaders, you will find inspiration and new ideas and have some fun along the way. And that will certainly happen today, because my guest is my co-worker, John Windsor, Director of Cultural Radar at Crispin Porter and Bogusky. He has had an extremely interesting, varied, and successful career, which I would like to, him to tell us about. So, John, welcome. Thanks. Hi, Katie. How are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm doing good, thanks. I was thinking we should also polycom it, so that that would be really weird, huh? Oh, yeah. Should we? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I'm not having a good hair day, so maybe no. We'll just do okay, radio. Okay, cool. We'll <laughs> no. do that. Yeah, that's, uh, my hair is a little out of control today, too. You know how much I have. So. Yeah, that happens often for you, I think. <laughs> exactly. So, exactly. So tell me a little. I mean, you've had such an interesting career. Before we sort of jump into CPB, can you just yeah. talk a little bit about the, the path that took you here? Uh, it was a long and winding path. <laughs> um, yeah, for sure. Um, <clears throat> I started... You know, I was in, uh, actually, kind of going way back, I, I got a job out of college in a publishing company, and I was kind of flying from New York to L.A. and, and put on a bunch of pounds and got really, you know, worried about that. And I kind of had this defining moment where I got into New York, and I said, ah, you know, I really want to go for a run. And the doorman back in, like, 80, I guess it was 84, said, dude, I wouldn't run around here. You'll get mugged. So, I, of course, I went back to my room and ate a huge cheeseburger and French fries and put on another couple pounds. Um, that that kind of started me on my path. I wrote a book called Fitness on the Road, which then um, inspired me to start a publishing company, which were all kind of sports-related titles, including women's sports and fitness. Mm-hmm. Um, I ended up selling that company to Condé Nast in 98, and then um, took some time off and surfed in Mexico for a year, and then started a kind of marketing research and strategy company called Radar. Um, wrote a couple books called Beyond the Brand and uh, Spark. And then here I am at Crispin. So how, um, just for the record, you could go running now in New York pretty much anywhere and you would be okay. Yeah, it's crazy, huh? I know. It's, it's, uh, yeah, and it's actually fun to look back at the book that, you know, back when I did Fitness on the Road, um, I got, actually, it was such a cool gig because I got United Airlines and the Four Seasons Hotel to sponsor me because no, nobody except for the Four Seasons Hotels had workout equipment in their hotel room or in their hotels isn't that crazy and now every i mean and actually that's my thing you know i've been working out and i have a trainer here at, at tpb and, he, and i'm like oh you know ben i can't do it next week because i'm on the road and he's like where are you staying because i guarantee you they have a gym and he's right every place has a gym now every place does yeah it's crazy. i'm just lazy that's there you have it it's hard not <laughs> it's hard not to be when you're traveling so you joined so so cpb and um and and your comp- radar communications decided yep. to join up and tell yep. me a little bit about that and what you do at CPB. Yeah, so we came in. Um, it's not only myself, but uh, there were twelve radarites 
And uh, before, you know, one of the things I was really concerned about um, going into, uh, or actually when I started Radar, is I'd had some bad experiences with focus groups and traditional market research. And the goal at Radar was really to flip that paradigm upside down or be disruptive in the marketplace. Um, that's one of the things I've really enjoyed all my career is try to be disruptive where I am, or wherever I am or in the marketplace. And um, so that was really our perspective. We, we really focused on ethnography and anthro-journalism, kind of a mashup that we came up with between anthropology and journalism and really focused on a new way to look at, at strategy. Um, and that was, you know, really the connection between ourselves and um, CPB was just born out of a friendship that Alex and I had mountain biking, actually, when he came to Boulder. Um, and just, you know, looking at the ways to be more disruptive, not just in, in the advertising world, but also in product innovation and marketing as it as it gets more embedded into product. Well, and you say that, you you know, from now at CPB and before when, it, when you were Radar on your own, your philosophy sort of was to be disruptive. Mm-hmm. Now, that word disruptive, that, that sort of could have a negative connotation. I don't, I'm, what do you mean by that? Yeah, well, I think, you know, I, I, I was writing about this the other day on my blog, and I think, you know, that there's really no middle ground these days. Either, you know, if you're a brand or if you're a marketer, either you're, you're going to be a disruptor, uh, and that could be, you know, a Starbucks or a Google or an Apple, um, or you're going to be disrupted. There's no in-between. <laughs> Before, you, know, you could kind of survive by, you know, managing your brand and, and focusing on it, um, and, and the competition was the competition, but it wasn't going to, the landscape was not going to change radically very mm-hmm. quick or very quickly. And today, you know, just out of the periphery, things come along that just totally change the way that you view the world. Um, you know, just lots of examples out there of 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 that happening. <clears throat> Whether you're, uh, you know, I just think about uh, the classic example I always write is bookstores. If you're a, a independently owned, really good bookstore in Boulder, Colorado, just think of the profound effect that Amazon's had on you. And you know, that's something. So I'm sure before Amazon came about, nobody really thought, or the the, the owner of the bookstore never really thought of of the internet being competitive, right? Mm-hmm. So, so that's just uh, that's what I mean by being either a disruptor or being disruptive. It means just that I, I'm always really interested in trying to change the paradigm and and be. There's always sticking points in culture and trying to make those a little bit more fluid, so change can happen faster. So, well, and and what I mean, what do you think is the ideal role for research and planning in an overall branding strategy? Well, a couple things. One is I think it can act as an early warning system. Right to kind of get ahead of things, um, and you know I come from a world where we we really focused on the consumer's voice and getting kind of really deeply culturally connected in context with with customers and consumers to figure out where they were going and, and what they were doing, and then kind of building on that. And one of the things that really attracted me to come here was that Alex's point of view is really the ability to look at culture overall and how culture influences a person's actions. So really what our department tries to do is mash all that up and come up with ways to discover the cultural tensions and then use strategies to, to, as a lever to move those, to move the culture. Now you talk, you, you, um, you just mentioned your book, Beyond the Brand, mm-hmm. and the premise, why engaging the right customer is essential to winning in business. Yeah. Why? Why? Well, it's, you know, I really believe there was a book kind of written by Everett Rogers back in the 50s called uh, The Diffusions of Innovation, and I really believe that there are, and it's, it's you know, lots been written on it, right? It's uh, the tipping points based on the same thing, mavens or, or essentially early adopters. 
um, but the focus really is you've got to connect with those really really early adopters or what I call them are trend translators, not the innovators that are way off the front, but folks that are actually changing the culture. That they have more political capital with their friends and their peers. You know, when when you've got innovators, you can look at an innovator if you're kind of a, a regular person or, you know, a, a majority in the majority. You can say, well, that, you know, that's Joe. He's really out there. You know, he's always innovative. I can't be like him. But if there's somebody a little bit closer and, and they decide to do something, take up a new activity, um, use a new website, buy a new pair of shoes, you might say, wow, now that's pretty interesting. I wonder why they buy, bought Hush Puppies or I wonder why they're using Ask.com. Right, there must be something there. I'm gonna, I'm gonna follow that. So, um, I've always been really interested in kind of connecting with those early adopters or trend translators and figuring out why, you know, what turns them on. Why are they willing to take risks and change culture, and how do they lever culture? Um, that's what we're trying to do here: is just really try to figure that out and help our brands really lever culture and lever those relationships. I want to ask you something about early adapters because mm-hmm. I think, you know, it's easy to see some some people that are just sort of always on the edge and always cool and say, okay, well, that is an early adapter. Then you take somebody like my dad. My dad's in his 60s. He's a philosopher. There's not that many of those around these days. No, He's a true no philosopher. That's cool. And there's two things that really interest my dad. Well, now not so much anymore, but for many, many years he was a runner. So. Uh-huh. He could, you could always count on him to be an early adapter when it came to running. Yeah. And he loves technology. So he always has, you know, he had the first iPod and right at the beginning, I think we had the first VCR that ever came out. That's cool. I mean, it was enormous. But now if you were to take a look, you know, if you were tr- going to try to figure out some, you know, you had a technology client, you certainly wouldn't look at my father and say, that that philosopher there with the Saul Bellow book under his arm, he's the man that we need to, t- you know, to talk to. So how do you ferret out who these early adapters really are? Yeah, but that's not really the case, right? I mean, I, sometimes, it, well, I, the classic example I, 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 I always use is, like, it, you know, it's, 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 there's so many different things. I mean, it, there, it's not just one big diffusion curve and you're an early adopter or you're a late majority or, or you're in that all your life. So the, the example I always use is like if you're a new mom and you're in a neighborhood and, and your kid's clothes are getting really dirty or you can't figure out what to do because your kid's colicky, you know, who's the early adopter, right? Who's the most knowledgeable person in the neighborhood that you go to? Who's the opinion leader? It's probably somebody who has three or four kids, who's been through it before, who knows that kind of secret trick to get, you know, to get the kid to go to bed or, or whatever. So, um, so, you know, in each little marketplace, whether it's cleaning clothes in the neighborhood or it's technology, there are lots of different um, early adopters. I mean, a real hard example is we were doing some instant messaging work for a, a, for a global um, – technology company a few years ago, and one of the things we found with instant messaging really early on, like five or six years ago in the United States, and obviously in Europe and Japan it was a little different, but the two people that were, that were, that were influencing instant messaging at the time were business people, you know, people that needed to, to communicate really quickly. And then there was this really interesting group of kind of stay-at-home moms with a bunch of kids that were really into couponing that we found. And it was really interesting because you think, wow, they're not really technology, technologically savvy. But what we found was it was very much um, a very conservative group, stay-at-home moms. And instant messaging gave them a way to connect with their friends in a really harried kind of stay-at-home mom way, right? Mm-hmm. And they were really into, they were really into couponing. 
Um, so they were always looking for deals. These, these women's basements would be full of supplies for a year. Like when they would buy diapers for their kids, they would buy a year's worth of diapers. And they needed a really quick way to say, hey, Safeway's having a sale on diapers today. You've got to get down there. You can save this much money. Um, so it, it was really interesting to talk to the women because it really brought a different point of view to why use instant messaging. And, that's, and it, it's a lot of the products that came out of that were really leveraged on that um, on that that conversation we had with those women, so so as you know, traditionally you would think that oh, those guys aren't early adopters, right? Right, but in some but, senses they were. But they were because they used the technology a ton, and they were they were trying new things with their friends. It just was a way to facilitate relationships that they couldn't otherwise have. So, well, talking about early adapters, you were an early adapter um, with your blog, and as a as a PR person, and a lot of people that listen are, are PR people. Um, that's something that interests us a lot because there's mm-hmm. so much controversy still around how around how important blogs are, whether clients should have them, whether right. you know the company companies should have them, if people on them should be able to talk as a company representative or simply as themselves. So it's something that generates a lot of debate, and I don't think that there's any one answer. But can you? Tell us a little bit about your blog and how it got started and, and how you see it, What's, you know, where, it, where it stands. Sure. Um, you know, I started my, my blog back in 2004 when I was doing Beyond the Brand. And you know, at the time, you know, it was a new technology, and so one of the thoughts that I had was, oh, maybe it's a good way to promote the book. And um, there were a couple other authors out there doing a pretty good job of it. Probably the person that inspired me the most was Seth Godin and his ability to do a good job of blogging. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, so that's that was the genesis, right? The genesis was to be more of a, a push. Um, idea and and to really tell the world about the books or my philosophy, and I think that's a still a, an important part of um, the blogosphere. Um, I, you know, it's it's interesting to me how kind of a, if you take the thirty thousand foot view. I, I was really intrigued the other night when when Nightline was, has been where recently Nightline has been using a lot of reporters from current TV, which are essentially citizen journalists, mm-hmm. um, and they're and they're so they're you know it's this kind of mashup. I, I, I come from my my family. I'm fourth generation newspaper publishing, so you know, kind of journalism and the sacredness of journalism is is deep within my soul. <laughs> so this whole idea of throwing the gates open and and letting everyone become a journalist is kind of a scary concept. Um, but I think it's an awesome thing. I mean, I think it's you know, there's a there's a debate. I was having a debate with one of my journalist colleagues the other day about that about the fact that you know a lot of journalists feel a lot of disdain for oh you know bloggers just take what i you know what i wrote and and you know offer an opinion and they get all the credit or they get they push the culture forward or whatever um so for me i've really changed the philosophy of of why i blog and and for a while you know like i said it was more push and and today it's more pull today it's more an extension of my brain it's it's a way for me to kind of keep track of interesting trends of interesting ideas interesting thoughts and and I I'm one of the reasons that I want to put it in a public forum is because I like the fact that people give me feedback or give mm-hmm. me people give me more ideas so that you know if I post something that I think is an interesting trend like yeah yeah like yesterday I posted something on um on the fact that you know Halo 3 you know what effect did that have on recent movie sales that's just a really interesting trend right it's like kind of this mashup we talked about earlier um so what what I find interesting is when I post something like that, people will either send me links by email or 
put comments, and my knowledge builds from that. So when I go back and I say, hmm, I wrote something about how video games influence uh, influence um, movies, there's, there's a lot more information than what I put up. It's kind of this collective. Um, so that's why I use blogs, and I think it's a really powerful tool. Also, it's a, it's a way to create community around ideas. Um, you know, one of the things that I, I gave a, a speech at the virtual community conference a few months ago was the, the first um, conference, and it was very interesting because, you know, Craig's from, Craig from Craig, Craigslist was there, and, and some of the founders of MySpace were there, and just a good collection of folks. And one of the guys from a technology company said, you know, they, they used to have a website, and it was doing pretty well, but they actually have gotten rid of their website and now have 25 blogs all written by different people inside of their, of their <clears throat> company. And what they find is they're getting about 10 times the kind of traffic. And, and the reason that they like it, and certainly they, the, the website is a way to connect with the blogs, but the way that the reason that they like it so much in the technology space, or this company does, software companies, when they made a mistake, when they published something on their website, it would literally take weeks or months to correct that, right? Mm-hmm. Just because they had to go through all the process of, you know, the vetting of making sure that it was the right thing to say on the website. What they found was that when an engineer had a blog and he put up some new, to- new uh, code or an idea, that the community around the brand would actually respond to that. And if there was something wrong with the code, it would get corrected instantaneously, that that the whole you know the whole culture around the brand was really excited not only to have access to that thinking, but also could help create it and that, that idea of co-creation that I've written some about. So. I want to talk about co-creation. We have to take a quick break, and as soon as we yep. come back, we'll talk about co-creation. We'll be back right after this. Sit tight and don't move. The hook. We'll be back after this short break. XY7.com. Do you have a website? XY7.com. Would you like to convert your clicks into cash? XY7.com. Is the affiliate network that pays you daily? XY7.com. Not all website clicks are the same, but they're all worth money. XY7.com. Join today and start earning cash now. XY7.com. Has guaranteed commissions. You'll get paid even if we don't. Go to XY7.com now. Convert your website clicks to cash. Mr. Scott, I can't get any more information onto our website. I'm doing the best I can, Captain. There's no more room on the server. It's going to blow. Evaluation, Mr. Spock. The logical answer is Lunar Pages. Reputation, reliability, and legendary 24-7 support makes Lunar Pages the host to cling on to. Did you say cling on? Aye, Captain. Sign up at LunarPages.com and get $700 off coffee cup software absolutely free. If you call, they will answer. Lunar Pages it is. Beam us aboard, Mr. For out-of-this-world web hosting, Lunar Rocks. Sign up for web hosting with LunarPages.com and use coupon code LUNATICS to get $28 off. Dude, fishing in Costa Rica is going to be awesome. Amen, bro. Now that Value Click Media had netted FastClick, we've got one of the largest online advertising networks fishing us for big bucks. You know, while we're out catching snapper. Hey, Steve, you're coming too, right? No, I'm still using BanasRUs.com. I can't afford to be away. You've got to work with Value Click Media. I've got this great account manager who's easy to work with, and they have access to the best advertisers and earn me high rates. Don't worry. We'll bring back pictures. Yeah, terrific. Visit Value Click Media now and click on Solutions for Publishers for more Details. Value Click Media.
Get ready for AdTech New York, fully loaded. November 5th through the 8th, four action-packed days with everything today's modern marketer needs for total impact. AdTech New York, the industry's largest and most relevant conference, will blow you away with 350 exhibitors, four fully loaded conference tracks, and an adrenaline-filled afternoon of fast-paced power panels. Keynotes featuring Susan Whiting of Nielsen Media, Comstock of NBC Universal, and Shelly Lazarus of Ogilvy Worldwide. Rocket through the AdTech Exchange Series with speakers from leading agencies, publishing companies, associations, and brands. It's hot, it's smart, and it's smoking. It's AdTech New York, fully loaded. November 5th through the 8th at the New York Hilton. Go to ad-tech.com today for details. Full coverage only on webmasterradio.fm, the official radio station for AdTech. You have arrived at the destination for education and entertainment. Webmasterradio.fm Because not everyone's last name is Gates. Webmasterradio.fm We're everywhere. Now back to The Hook. The intersection of advertising and PR. Only on Webmasterradio.fm Now, here's your host... Hi, I'm Katie Kempner, and I'm talking today to my co-worker, John Windsor, Director of Cultural Radar at Kristen Porter-Bogusky. Hey, John. Hey, Katie. So, we, we, you mentioned co-creation, and I know that's uh, a phrase that, you know, you use to talk about some, uh, something that means a lot and your work, and can you talk a little bit about what that means? Yeah, I, I, you know, the idea is of co-creation is that, you know, smart people and, and smart brands will create the future together. And, um, you know, and that's really the basis of co-creation. I mean, I think you're seeing that you know, since I kind of brought that the idea to the fore in Beyond the Brand, that that's really come to pass with things like user-generated media um, and the ability for people to kind of go out and do, you know, riffs on brands and all those kinds of things. Um, I think you're going to see more of it as you see more brands opening themselves up for user-generated product, right? And I think a great example of that is, um, is Nike ID, mm-hmm. one of our clients who's done a great job of, like, giving a, a – essentially what they've done is they've kind of given a platform for people to create their own product. And I think more and more brands will – We'll start doing that. That's kind of a new, uh, to me, that's that's the next step in, in co-creation. Well, you mentioned user-generated media, and right before the break, you also talked about how the Internet now affords the chance and how um, even Nightline is letting all different kinds of people being a journal, you know, become a journalist, and whether that's sacred and whether that isn't sacred. Mm-hmm. How do you see the future in terms of, you know, everybody getting to be an advertiser, everybody getting to be a journalist, does it dilute every message or does it make them stronger? I, you know, my, I kind of kind of go back to my roots. So my roots are special interest magazines. And so, you know, I started Rocky Mountain Sports and, and all these other magazines. And my philosophy for um, special interest magazines was that, you know, the job of an editor or a publisher, essentially, or, and this could go, this could be a blogger or a brand that's interested in creating community, um, is that you know the job of a publisher is to create a community table, and mm-hmm. um, you know back in the 80s and early 90s, kind of pre-blog, you know infancy of, of internet was what for me it, the 
special interest magazines were really interesting in that, first of all, back to the thought of early adopters, if you have climbing magazine, back then there were three or four million climbers in the world, or in the United States, um, but there were only 30 or 40,000 subscribers to climbing magazine. So essentially the editors of climbing magazine had all the thought leaders, the early adopters, um, as readers, and their job was really to set a table so that everybody can have a dialogue. So that include reader, included readers, advertisers, photographers, uh, writers, and and that's where how the culture got pushed forward. Um, and you know, in a lot of cases, in a lot of special interest niches, there were several magazines that had to duke it out. Right? I mean, it's crazy to me back then, like five or six different climbing magazines. Talk about small little niche. Um, and I think that's really that's really what's happened, but only on steroids. So now everybody can be a publisher, but the publishers that or the bloggers that really succeed are the ones that really form that community table and are concerned with facilitating a dialogue, pushing the culture forward, taking other opinions, and making sure that you know people feel included. And the brands that do that really well are going to succeed as well. Um, there was an article I'm sure you caught in the New York Times this weekend about Nike and Nike Plus and how mm-hmm. they're spending a lot of their money on building these kinds of tools for for customers, right? that can, can empower them to do their sport better or communicate with each other. And to me, that's the same thing. Nike Plus is essentially a big community table for runners. And it gives, it gives runners the ability to compare stats with other runners, to talk to you know, not only their buddies, but compare to people that they might be competitive with or you know, connect with editors in the running, at, at, say, Runner's World magazine or Running Times, um, all those kinds of things. So... Um, I think what we'll see is a big sorting out, you know, when there's any, any time there's a new kind of medium. And we saw that back, I'm sure you remember, back kind of in the independent weekly days, right? Mm-hmm. Like that was a hot medium and everybody, like every town had six or seven different weekly newspapers. And that's all consolidated and the ones that haven't been successful or didn't have the best voice or didn't create the most community just went away. And I think you'll see the same thing in the blogosphere. Um, and the same thing with brands. Those those brands that don't create the community around them, um, that Nike's doing with Nike Plus, just won't be around. Can't be competitive. Um, and and back to that that idea that I I talked about at the very beginning is that to me creating community is a very disruptive thing, right? Because what you're doing is you're creating a deeper connection with your customers. You're you're creating some stickiness to mm-hmm. your brand that allows your customers to say. Hmm. You know, I really love Nike Plus, and I, I really want to use that. And next time I buy a pair of shoes, I'm going to buy a pair of Nikes because I'm part of that community. I want to be a part of that. And we want uh, them to buy Nikes. <laughs> exactly. We definitely want them to buy lots of Nikes. Buy lots of Nikes. But now, I have to just ask you one one last thing. Yeah, you yeah. mentioned at the beginning that uh, you know you were sitting around your hotel room scarfing cheeseburgers and worrying yeah. about your weight, and anybody that knows you knows you. You are in amazing shape. I know you're really passionate about sports and being in shape, and I think that that's something that I see over and over with a lot of business people that are traveling and that are busy. They just say, you know, I just I don't have time for it. I, I can't fit it in. I'm concentrating on work right now. How does this fit into your philosophy on life and business, and, and what could somebody else take away that might be inspiring? Ah, that's a good question. You know, I, I think for me, it's I I am I'm, I'm very ADD, and 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 on top of that, I I get obsessive. So I have no like either I, I I'm laying on the couch, passed out, or I'm you know trying to 
trying to do some new rock climb, you know, but there's no in between. So, you know, and, and fortunately, you know, my wife and my two little six-year-old guys are very supportive of that. Um, I think that's, you know, one of the things that makes it possible to do those kinds of things. But it also, I think it, it, it's, if you're going to be passionate about that's finding a community that you're, that supports those passions. And, and Crispin is one of those communities, right? It's, it's a community that's based on some eccentricities and pushing yourself hard and being fearless. And, and that was really one of the attractions that, that um, you know, made me join the company. And this is my first job in 25 years. And it's kind of a wild experience to come from having your own thing for 25 years to, you know, such a, a wild place like Crispin that's full of magic and people that push themselves so hard and, and are so fearless. Because that really translates not just in work, but also in play. You know, not being afraid to try new things, not being afraid to, you know, if you get in at 10 o'clock at night, how can I go work out? You know, make sure that I get my stuff in or what's that kind of fun little thing I can do on the weekend that really inspires me or pushes me beyond what I thought I could do. Instead of saying, oh, I would if I was just, you know, if I just was a little faster or if I just was in a little better shape or if I just had a little more time. There's really, you know, trying to just break those barriers. And let me ask, so now... That works for you in, in, in your life. Is there any other piece of advice? Because one of the things I like to ask at the end, see, I put this on you because I asked you specifically about yeah. fitness, but is there any piece of advice that you could give to somebody who's listening, who may be starting out or not happy in their job, you know, as a person who's moved around and done your own thing a lot, that would sort of help guide you with your career? Yeah. Well, a couple of things. One is, you know, I've spent a lot of time, as you know, in the backcountry and had some close calls being, you know, involved in a big avalanche and having some climbing accidents. And, and, and so, you know, in business, one of the really great things is you're not going to die as a consequence of your actions. And, and so I think that's a really good thing to remember. It's something I always remind myself is when things get really hot and heated and you're just like, hey, nobody's going to die here. It's just advertising, right? <laughs> or it's just product innovation. It's, like, it's, it's okay. We're going to all get through it. And tomorrow, no matter how bad it gets, we've got another day. We can, we can figure out how to take it forward. So that's, to me, that's something I live by every day. Um, and then the second thing is, is just follow your passion. You know, and I know that's re- sometimes that's really hard to do because there's a lot of unknowns and it's really hard to do, but I just find that for me, it's my life is all about connecting with people that, that are going to push me and that are going to, you know, that I find um, similar passions with. And those people really turn me on and I, I, you know, I find that I can do things that I never thought I could accomplish. Um, it's really, really fun, but if I get into situations where people aren't as passionate or I'm not inspired, it's just really easy for me to start shutting down. And I would just encourage everybody to find those things you're really passionate at and just pursue them hard um, and figure out a way to do that and make that transition to doing that. So, And just remembering that, hey, a career change, you know, nobody's going to die. And it's, you know, even if it becomes a failure, I've started a lot of businesses that haven't been successful. It's okay, you know. It's it's okay to look back and say, "Wow, that didn't work out in the way I wanted it to." But, damn, it was fun while it lasted. And there was no avalanche. <laughs> no. Yeah, and there was no avalanche, right? I mean, I mean that to me that that is still one of the defining moments of my life, where you know, twelve or fourteen of us were buried in a thousand foot slide that was nine foot deep, and you know, the fracture line, and we tumbled, you know, a thousand feet down this forty degree slope, and. You know the fear and the just—it's still a deep-seated thing that that you know, I'm just—it's so fortunate that nobody died in it, but the ramifications have been profound for everybody that was there. And you know, so things that are short of that—it's just 
you know, why not? Why not try? And, you know, it's it's not gonna. You're not gonna get hurt. And I mean, you know, you need to have skills, right? That's why we all try to do better every day to build the skills that we can have those kind of exceptional days or exceptional experiences, whether they're in business or in life. So. Absolutely. Well, John, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Katie. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Okay, I'll talk to you soon. Take care. And thank you for listening. Please join me next Tuesday for another edition of The Hook when I'll be talking with Peggy Conlon, director of the Ad Council, which promises to be a very interesting show. Thank you so much. Have a terrific day. Bye-bye.